As I said earlier, uh, our, we've been going through a series uh, which, was in, which is entitled, How Then Shall We Live?, where we looked at uh, various theological topics uh, and then looked at the implications uh, for life and, and how that uh, interacted uh, with what we know. First, we looked at creation. Then we looked at the image of God. Then we looked at the fall, or how did sin enter the world, God's providence, or God's active role in this world and in, the, in life. And then last week, we looked at our first look, or first week of redemption, which is God making things new, or uh, enduring the curse of what is wrong in this world so that he might uh, redeem it uh, through the blood of his cross. And, uh, and so today, we're going to uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a second week on redemption, and we're going to be doing that from one verse uh, as a foundation, and then we're going to be kind of looking at a framework through uh, the scriptures. And so we're going to be a lot of different places. Uh, you might want to follow along because uh, I think the the um, presentation is going a little bit wonky due to our internet. Uh, so uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at one verse, verse 10, uh, and, um, and that is, I don't have any control, Jace, so, all right, so Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, would you stand with me? Uh, it's a very, uh, very uh, quick scripture reading this morning, but it is loaded with import for us. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me pray. Father, I ask that you would take your word, that you would speak to us by the power of the Spirit. God, that you would uh, enliven our hearts, give us a, a, a view of this world that is truly biblical, that is truly matching your heart for this world. God, challenge our thinking in ways that maybe we have uh, kind of fallen into uh, secular thought and thought of centuries ago, but yet is not matching your word. So, Father, I ask and, uh, and I pray that you be at work. Thank you for uh, the truth of the cross, that Jesus endured the curse of this world so that he might redeem it. Father, that he might redeem us, and Father, we might be a part of the redeeming and the healing and the restoring of your world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So back, now it's about 16 years ago, 2005, uh, a, a Christian artist named Sarah Groves, she wrote a song, and it was entitled To the Moon. It's only a minute and a half song, so, uh, and uh, it's basically a satire. It's a satire on the church's involvement in the world. Uh, and with this song, she is critiquing uh, the tendency among God's people to withdraw from the world, uh, knowing that the world's kind of, you know, moving further and further away from God and his will, that oftentimes God pe God's people feel like it is something to escape from rather than a place in uh, that we are called to live in. So uh, I won't sing it for you, but uh, here, I know, I know, Linda said that would be awesome, but I, I rejected that. 
Anyway, uh, so here, here, I I used this many years ago, and it resonated, uh, and just God brought it back to my mind. So here here are the words. Remember, this is a satire. Uh, It was there in the bulletin, we're leaving soon, after the bake sale to raise funds for fuel. The rocket is ready, and we're going to, we're going to take our church to the moon. Next verse. There'll be no one there to tell us we're odd. No one to change our opinions of God. Just lots of rocks in this dusty sod here at our church on the moon. Remember, this was written in 2005. Next verse. We know our liberties. We know our rights. We know how to fight a very good fight. Just get that last bag there and turn out the light. We're taking our church to the moon. We're taking our church to the moon. We'll be leaving soon. Now that sounds ridiculous. What, why would anybody join a church and then want it to just sail away out of this world? But if you think hard enough, it's not too difficult for us as God's people to see that oftentimes we think through escaping from this world rather than living in it for the glory of God. This is pushed to its extreme. Let's just take our church and let's fly off to the moon. It's ridiculous, but yet at times, are we truly living or thinking that way about how God would work in this world? Because I want to set up for us a framework of redemption. Last week, we looked at kind of God uh, reorienting the creator and the created or the creation, that distinction, that redemption restores that, that redemption reverses things that are wrong in this world by Jesus enduring the curse on the cross, uh, Colossians 1, that all those things were redeemed by the blood of the cross but then we made this claim, and, and it's, it's in, in that same passage, that there is not just a personal uh, component to redemption, meaning that God takes my dead heart and makes it alive, or God takes your rebellious heart and brings it back into love for him. There's also a cosmic uh, scope to redemption, that it is not merely or only the human heart that he heals, He is seeking to redeem and restore all of creation. So let's step back and let's let's do a framework of redemption. So we're going to ask the question uh, to do that, what was created? So uh, you can kind of flip back if you want, but we're going to be kind of summarizing Genesis 1 and 2. And so to do that, uh, here's uh, kind of, I'm an Excel guy, right? So we're going to do a chart. Uh, So... um, and hopefully the chart's there. That's right. And it's really small. All right. We'll just, we'll do it in summary, okay? Uh, and, and because I don't have slides on my phone, I actually have to turn around. Uh, what was created? The heavens and the earth, the land and the seas, uh, everything was created. Vegetation, the sun and the moon, animals, mankind, okay? Those were the tangible things created. But what were, remember we talked about invisible things that were created? What else was invisible that was created? Relationships. You know, it's not good for man to be alone. There was marriage. There was relationship between man and God. There were relationships. There was authority. There was, I can't read that, purpose, morality, work, stewardship, rest, delight, sexuality, and peace. 
That's not an exhaustive list, but that's what I thought would fit readably on a screen. I was wrong. Okay? Uh, it fits on a screen, you just can't read it, nor can I. So, so those are the concepts of what was created, right? Okay, so, uh, but what has been corrupted? Genesis chapter 3, what has been corrupted? Okay, so if that's what was created, what was corrupted, and the first thing you see is the, uh, is the idea that sin enters the world through mankind. And so mankind, if you go one more slide, is, is obviously the thing that is corrupted. But is that the only thing corrupt in this world? Because the, the, the curse falls to Adam, the curse falls to Eve, the curse falls on the serpent, but what else does the curse fall on? Adam say, or God says to Adam that in your work, by the sweat of your brow, you will now eat. Basically, creation and all of creation is also corrupted. And so not just mankind, but all of the things at the top of that list are corrupted as well. The heavens and the earth, uh, land and sea. Go one more slide, Jay. Uh, the, all of the different things of creation are corrupted, but if we go one more, what else is corrupted? All the invisible things as well. Authority, relationships, morality, peace, sexuality, everything in this world is now corrupted. Not just the things we can see, the tangible things, not just the human heart, but all, everything in creation Visible and invisible are now corrupted. So God makes all things, and now all things are corrupted. That's why Romans 8 says that all of creation groans and awaits the revealing of the children of God. That creation itself is subject to the curse. And so mankind, all the created things, all the invisible things are corrupted. But then also, what is redeemed? Okay, and so what is being redeemed? Now, the obvious thing that we're going to think about is God saves sinners like me and sinners like you by, by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he brings us back into relationship with God. We hear it in Matthew 28, uh, starting in verse 19, where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he speaks to his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What do we call that? That is the Great Commission. But what's interesting is God's people have, have taken that, which is obviously a call and a purpose for God's people. There's no question about it. To take the truth of the gospel to the nations and see people become disciples of Christ. But we've taken that and said that is the sum total and only and merely what God's people are involved in. I would say that's a truncated, if that's the only scope of purpose for God's people, we are suffering from a truncated view of what God is doing in the world. It is absolutely essential. I'm not debating the Great Commission. But it cannot be the extent and the end. Because God is doing far more than merely and only saving sinners and bringing us back into right relationship with him. What else is God doing? So, so what does the Great Commission redeem? 
So God created all those things. All those things are now corrupted. What does the Great Commission redeem? If we look at the next column, we see mankind being redeemed by the Great Commission. Okay? You could also argue if mankind is being redeemed, then you see relationships and authority because Jesus is teaching that they would, they would obey all that I command, uh, that we would see a new purpose and morality, that that could be redeemed in the Great Commission. But look at all the other things that are not redeemed in the Great Commission. Creation and all of the, the, the things that are invisible, like authority and relationships in this world. And that's where we get to Colossians 1. We looked at it last week. Colossians 1.20, uh, we get to this. And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does that mean? Is that Jesus is not only about bringing people back into right relationship with God the Father, he is also about redeeming and having everything reconciled back to him. Everything. Now, what does that mean? Uh, is that now what is created, what is corrupted, and now what is being redeemed is everything that was created and corrupted is being redeemed by the work of Jesus. Go to that next thing. And so everything that was created is also redeemed. Go one more. And all of the different facets of what was corrupted are now on the scope of redemption in God. Now, we were created for this earth. Jesus came to restore all things in creation, mankind and things in creation. Now, why is that important? We're going to see that that change changes fundamentally how we live. If you are merely and only thinking your purpose as a believer is the Great Commission, that leads you somewhere. If you see Jesus redeeming and restoring all things and us becoming a part of his redemptive story, that leads you to a different place. And we're going to see how. What do we see at the end of the scriptures? Jesus declares in Revelation 21, verse 5. Jesus says, that it's he who is seated on the throne. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And so for us to come into the redemptive story of Jesus, that we need to, uh, in a sense, uh, grab back the idea of the restoration of all things. What's also been hijacked is when that occurs. What's interesting is many believers see, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is going to make everything new, but that's in the eschaton, that's the end times, that's in eternity. Right now, we just suffer through it, and, uh, and we get through. But I want to say, and I want to submit that the scriptures bring that eternal reality right now, and that for us to come into the kingdom of God is to also follow in Jesus in the new creation, that the new creation is inaugurated now. That it is started now, even though it will be fully consummated later. So we're going to see the, the inauguration of the new covenant, okay? What do I mean by that? What's an inauguration? We just went through one in January, uh, and, you know, our, our president, Joe Biden, was inaugurated, okay? At the start of his 
presidency. It was like a beginning point, the start, the, uh, the inauguration. And so the inauguration of the new creation is what Jesus ushers in in the kingdom of God. God is restoring this world rather than scrapping it and starting over. And God the Father sacrificed his own son Jesus to redeem not just people, but his whole creation, redeemed by the blood of his cross. Now, what do I mean by that? Notice what Jesus did in his ministry, okay? How did he inaugurate new creation, okay? What does he do? He, he uh, obviously is preaching, and so there's a spoken component, a, a, a word and a scripture component of the coming kingdom. That's very much there. Go proclaim the kingdom and make disciples. But there's also a demonstration of the kingdom. What does Jesus do? He performs miracles. He heals people that were sick. He heals people that were suffering with disease. He he heals and drives out demons out of people's lives. It's been said all except one miracle where he actually curses a fig tree. Everything else is uh, depicted by restoration. They're miracles of restoration. Restoring to health, life, restoring somebody from, to freedom from, uh, from possession. It's basically what the, the miracles of Jesus, uh, Al Walters would say this, is freeing creation from the shackles of sin and evil and reinstating what creaturely living is intended to be. Did you hear that? That Jesus, in his miracles, is reversing what is wrong, and he is freeing creation from the shackles of sin and evil. And he does that as he ushers in the kingdom. Well, John the Baptist, uh, he was in prison, and his messengers come to Jesus, and they're wondering, is Jesus the, mess- is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the one? Is he the coming king? Do you remember Jesus' answer? He says, go back and report this to John. Report what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf now hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. If you were going to give evidence of the kingdom's coming, would you point to Blind people, lame people, leprous, deaf, and dead people being raised. No, we would say, Jesus is preached and people are coming to faith in Christ. But Jesus himself says, I'm the king and my kingdom has come because the tangible realities of this world are changing. I'm restoring life to what it ought to be. I'm reversing blindness. I'm allowing lame people to walk, leprous people to, that, uh, to be able to have uh, their health back, and the good news is preached. Healing, restoration, and all of those different aspects of the restoration of creation are, are proof of the kingdom of God coming. And then Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, pray this in Matthew 6, 10, which we read earlier, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
this becomes the prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Jesus, would your kingdom come on this world, or in this world, where your will be done in this world, now, even in, 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 as it's begun or inaugurated, yet one day we would long for it to be complete? Does that mean we just hold on and wait till it's you know, one day? No, Jesus is calling us right now to be a part of the work of the kingdom, to be a part of that new creation that is not just in merely any, in, in eternity thing. It is something for us to be involved in right now. That's why in James, James chapter 1, he says true religion or true worship is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. You might say true religion or true worship is to show up on Sunday and sing praises. James says it is to care for orphans and widows, to reverse what is wrong in this world, and to be unstained by the sin of this world. Isaiah 58 says it this way. If you're saying, you know what, I'm not totally sure if if this is what the kingdom would look like, this is what Isaiah 58 says. Isaiah 58 verse 3 so this is, this is God's people asking God, why has he not accepted their fasting, their, their acts of worship? Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? That's the question that God's people are asking God. This is God's answer. Behold, In the day of your fast, in the day of your worship and prayer, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Do you you hear what God's distinguishing there? They're, They're doing the part of worship, the actions of worship, the practice of worship, yet they're they are not living out their worship in, it, in their daily lives. What they, are, what they are doing is pursuing their own gain and oppressing people. And God says, that's not the worship I want. It's not that Sunday morning praise and worship ought to be detached from daily life. They're both and. He goes on in verse 6 of that same chapter. He says, is, it not, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. He keeps going. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then, basically, when you do these things, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall, shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go up before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. What is the tangible evidence of the kingdom coming? The oppressed go free, wickedness is thwarted, hungry people are fed, homeless people find housing, people clothed and cared for. It's basically the restoration of what is wrong in this world. That's the worship or the fasting that God wants. That's what he tells his people. It's interesting because I think we tend to think in terms of spiritual and physical, meaning kind of the the move of the heart and then the tangible realities of this world, right? 
We tend to think about that, but I want to push on something. That is more following Greek thought, meaning Plato and Socrates, rather than biblical thought. Plato and Socrates would say this, and oftentimes I've heard it said in church, and so people think it's a biblical concept. They said that the body is a prison house of the soul, meaning we, our soul is trapped in this body. Okay, they would say that death is a release, from this, uh, release of the soul from this body and just attempt to keep your soul pure so they avoided common things like food, drink, clothes, shoes, sex, bodily ornaments. They just didn't, tie, they didn't concern themselves with those things. So if they could stay unstained by those things of this world, then their soul was free to escape from their body. They're not concerned with the body, but keeps their attention directed as much as they can towards the soul. Now, that is, you know, kind of uh, 3rd, 4th century B.C. Greek thought, but we are downstream of that, and that that has become part of our thought process. What's scary is that it's not even close to biblical, but wow, are we influenced it. Think about it this way. The spiritual is good, and physical, it's, it's either bad or not that important. Have you ever had that thought before? Or maybe if you've said or heard this, well, you know, somebody gets a job, or a new job, or a pay raise, or something good happens, or some kind of blessing occurs, or something tangible in this life happens, we kind of celebrate it, and then we footnote it. We footnote it, well, I know that's not what's really important. Or I know that's not what really matters. Have you ever had that thought process come into your brain? And we almost attach that footnote as if that's a sign of spiritual maturity when it's completely unbiblical. Because physical is not set opposite of the spiritual. God didn't design us that way, and he didn't design his world that way. So maybe next time that it comes into my own mind that, you know, I'm going to emphasize one over the other. God made both to be in existence together. It's not, oh, that the spiritual is what matters and this tangible reality isn't. No, God made them all for his own glory. So catch yourself next time uh, we go there. Here's another phrase. If God is redeeming, I would say since, since God is redeeming all things, that this inauguration of the new creation, pushing back what is wrong, and he's doing it in all facets of what is seen and unseen, mankind and tangible creation. There's another one that at times has come into my own thoughts and maybe yours. You ever kind of heard the phrase or felt the phrase, you know what, that's not a gospel issue. Things come up in your life, and you're like, you know what, that's not a gospel issue. It's something that's, that the gospel isn't pertaining to or doesn't bother itself with. Basically, the thought is that the gospel deals with the human heart and freeing it from bondage of sin, and, uh, and that's what the gospel is. So there's other issues in life that are just not gospel issues. But since God's redeeming all things by the blood of his cross, wouldn't that make everything a gospel issue? The answer is yes. 
It's a beautiful answer because it, it, it obliterates the idea of, of this sacred and secular realm that what, where God is at work, the sacred or the holy, is things of church. When we're around church or doing churchy things, that's where God is. But then there's this secular world that's out there in, in uh, you know, that, that isn't God's realm, like the marketplace of business or schools or neighborhoods or anything else, the arts. And that's not it at all. God's, God created it all. It all got corrupted. He's redeeming it all. Therefore, every area is God's. It is all God's creation. Yes, it's corrupted in some magnificent ways at times, but God desires all of creation recovered for his glory. What does that look like? What does it look like for God's people to not just run away and escape from things, but rather enter into the marketplace so as to how do we regain it for the glory of God? What would it look like for God's people to enter the arts and, and not only make explicitly Christian movies? What about making a movie for the glory of God that is just beautiful in its character as it matches how God uh, made this world? What would it look like to redeem and recapture relationships for the glory of God or to recapture authority for the glory of God or to enter into every realm of this world because God made it, God loves it, and God is redeeming it, we become part of the story of God in every facet of life. Basically, there's nothing that is outside of God's redeeming plan. Now, you can hear that as an academic exercise, or you can hear that as absolutely transformative, that the prayer, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come, we'll put it in modern, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that affects every hour tomorrow when you go to work. Monday morning becomes a, an experience of the gospel because you're going to work for the glory of God. Not just so that you can tell somebody about Jesus, but you're going to work everything you do for the glory of God. If you're staying at home with kids, you're going to do that to the glory of God. You're going to recapture and regain creation for His glory. It gives such meaning uh, rather than stringing Sundays together, and maybe we throw in a Wednesday night or a small group, rather than stringing these, these kind of uh, just uh, semi-separated events of church life, everything is a gospel, uh, gospel event where God is redeeming. And guess what? We get to be a part of it. And we get to be a part of redeeming creation under the victory of Jesus. Jesus has already accomplished the victory by the blood of his cross. It's kind of like D-Day. We've, we've talked about this before. You know, wh when was the, the wo World War II, when was it really decided? Was that, that crucial uh, taking of the beachhead uh, at Normandy on D-Day, when that happened, pretty much the war was over. But the war didn't end till months later when, when troops advanced. But once that happened, the war was really already decided. But it didn't become fully complete and ended until what they call V-Day, which is Victory Day. 
So it's kind of like the cross it has this beachhead where the war is already won, but yet we don't see its full completion until his return. And we get to enter into that story. We get to enter into the story where God is at work with the inauguration or the start of the new creation, yet it is not fully here. And this is where we end up with kingdoms in conflict. Okay? We end up with kingdoms in conflict. We looked at it last week in Colossians 1. And in Colossians 1 verse 13, uh, we, su- we see... Is that up there on the screen? We see that he... Uh, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness or the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That there is a kingdom of God and there is a, what, what has been termed in many different writings, a parasitic kingdom, a parasite kingdom, one that is in opposition to the kingdom of God and that both of these are here. Genesis 3 reminds us of something that evil is not just a force, and it's also not just bad stuff that happens. There is a, we have a very real enemy, and his name is Satan. And I don't mean to, uh, to overstate things, but Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He hates what is good, he hates the glory of God, and he is personally seeking to distort all of God's created good. That's the story of the garden. It was a personal evil that came to Adam and Eve. And we have that same enemy. And why did Jesus come? So we've got these two kingdoms in conflict. Why did Jesus come? 1 John 3, 8. Whoever, practices, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Get this. The reason... The Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is what God created. This is what's corrupted. This is what he's redeemed. That looks like a chart. Let me ask you this. Where and in what areas of this world is Satan at work? That's a much easier question to answer, isn't it? Where is Satan at work? You could probably write for the rest of the day, areas that Satan is at work. And why did Jesus come? Is to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you're saying, how do I become part of the kingdom of God and being part of this new creation work? Ask yourself, where is Satan at work? What is he trying to destroy? Where is he Uh, Where is he kind of getting his lies and distortion in? Where is he corrupted your thinking? What in this world is wrong? And then, under the victory of Jesus, we seek to recover creation to the glory of God. Now, what's really interesting is, is it's not that we reject parts of creation. We recognize what God created good, We recognize how it's distorted or corrupted and then how it might be redeemed. It's not, you know what, dance is bad because it can be used uh, by the devil, 100%. It can be used for for an unintended good, uh, good way. But yet, does that make dance wrong? No. 
So how is dance a part of the glory of God? How is it corrupted and fallen, and how can it be redeemed? Think about the arts. Think about anything, and how do we fight, and how do we become part of recapturing creation to the glory of God? So a friend of mine a couple months ago was teaching... um, a group, about 20 fourth grade boys. He was, went to a Christian school and he, he was invited in and he was teaching this class and he was talking about and teaching them from Romans chapter 12, verse 21, how, how the world needs them to fight against evil. Okay? And he told them that God actually wants them to be dangerous because if you're going to fight against evil, you're going to be kind of in the midst of the presence of evil, but you're fighting against it for the glory of God and fighting for good things. And he said one kid slapped his hand on his knee and yelled out, I knew it! And he said, I wish you could see their faces, these 20 fourth grade boys, when, when he had them yell, fight evil. He said, boys want to be heroes, and we need to fan that flame rather than domesticate it into docility and boredom. And that's not just fourth grade boys. I think that's everybody in the church. How bored are you with your Christianity? Because God is calling us into this beautiful picture of restoring creation to his glory. Not sitting back and showing up on Sunday morning and going through your work week and living this lifeless Christianity that's probably not even the gospel. God is calling you into the resurrection work of this world where people come to know him, absolutely, and then we get to restore and push back the work of the evil one under the victory of Jesus. Who wants in? That is the work of redemption. If we walk out of here, that was a neat little service, and we are unchanged by the reality of God's redeeming and kingdom-mindedness of this world. We've wasted our time this morning because God is saying to us, I am making all things new, and now that has become our story if you know Christ. And those boys are saying, yes! But yet at times we sit very docile and very bored and wondering why there's nothing to our Christian walk. I think Jesus is saying, I'm making all things new. Join me in pushing back and destroying the works of the evil one and seeing God's new creation be restored. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would take uh, your word, this kind of framework of redemption. God, you've created all things, and all things are corrupted, but yet you're redeeming them all. And God, in everything that we do, we see the gospel play itself out. Everything. Father, thank you that you are are bringing everything back into your authority, everything back under your feet, Father, and that we get to be a part of that where Adam was unable uh, to do what he was called to do to subdue the earth. God, you bring us as the sons and daughters of, of, of God to be the ones who bring this world back into and under your lordship. Father, I pray that we would be excited about that And Father, at the same time, it feels insurmountable without your power. 
going before us. And so, Father, help us to do those things in the power of God. Father, help us to to not just shrink back and try to get through the week. But God, where do you want us to be a part of your kingdom building and your redemption? So, Father, thank you that you are redeeming all things. Thank you for saving rebellious, dead, uh, blind people such as me. Father, thank you for that so that we might have a renewed purpose, the purpose of the glory of God. And Father, uh, just use this, challenge us in our thinking. God, I pray that we would not go out of here the same. And uh, thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.